Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. So you guys can open your Bibles there, Luke chapter two. We're gonna be in verse 41. Uh, This Luke series has been so fun so far. I'm excited to be in Luke for a while. I hope that you guys are getting to like read these passages at home, getting to really chew on what God's saying in this gospel um, and what the author Luke tells us in this detail. Tonight we're gonna be in the story of it's um, Jesus in the temple. And it's gonna be chapter two, starting in verse 41. You guys can read there with me. We're gonna read through the whole text for tonight. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Uh, let's pray before we get started. Jesus, we, um, yeah, we just stop for a moment before we even dive into what that passage holds for us, to what you're teaching us about yourself. And we just, um, like every time I read a story about you, Jesus, I just am reminded how amazing it is that you came for us, that you are here with us, that you're um, your presence, you speak to us, and that you, we get to like look at these testimonies, these accounts of your life, and learn from you. So tonight, Jesus, I just pray that you would come, that you would even right now just be doing that like refreshing work in our hearts where you take away anything that we don't need, God, and just present us with yourself, present us with who you are, that that's what we would hold tonight, that as we walk away, we'd be like, oh, I was cleaned out of anything less than him, than looking at him. We're just so excited to be with you, to look at you tonight, Jesus. Um, just thank you for your grace and your love. It's your name. Amen. This story in Luke is extra fun. Um, I mean, they're all fun, right? But this part of Luke chapter 2 is actually one of the only accounts we get of Jesus as a child. We get that first account that we looked at a little bit last week of his dedication, but this is the only one we get to see of Jesus as a boy. Um, I think that's really special that we get a chance to kind of go back, go into history and see like, oh yeah, before Jesus' ministry ever started, before we looked at him and the world started to be like, oh, is the, could this be the Messiah? Before anyone really knew who he was, he was, he was a boy and he was already teaching us what it looked like to follow God. He already was understanding his identity. I think that when we look at Jesus as a child, um, we get a glimpse that's worth stopping and looking at. 
Um, it's also, this section is the very first recorded words of Jesus in the Bible. It's the very first time that we hear him speak. So it'll be like, when you have a Bible, I think this one does, yeah, has like the red letters. This is gonna be the very first place that you see those red letters from Jesus. The first words that he speaks that we get to have account of, that we get to read and say like, oh, that's what he said, that's what he was thinking. Um, and I think that the very first words that he says, there are these, it's a question, right? It's, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And this phrase in the text, it confuses his parents because they don't understand fully yet what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. That it's not just that he's this promised one that he's sent from God, but what Jesus is saying with his questions, what he's saying, oh, I must be in my father's house, is something more intimate than Jewish people would have known at the time. He's actually, for the very first time, giving us this hint of like, oh no, I am God. I am Messiah. I am God come for you. And I think that that's what makes this, this account in like so special but so beautiful is his humility. That Jesus, fully God and fully man, we see him and he's sitting, he's asking questions, he's seeking to know more about God from people. He's choosing to be in the temple, to be near to the Father, and that Jesus become man. He submits in obedience to his parents. He honors them. In this humble state as a child, we're clued into what the scriptures would later show us so well, that the Messiah that we'd waited for, that the Jewish people had waited for, that history had waited for, was here, and he was God himself walk among us. And these accounts that the authors gave us in the scriptures, they're, they're purposeful and they're detailed. And I say all of this at the beginning just to be like, as you guys read through Luke, as you go home and you read these accounts, like stop and think. Like, what, oh, what does this really mean? What is the weight of this? Like this story, when I came to it um, to study, I was like, oh, I've read this a ton of times and never really stopped. I'm like, yeah, Jesus would be in the temple. That's good. Keep going. But the scriptures give us actually just a wealth of what history tells us. And so I think there's a really cool part of scripture where we look back and we say, oh, this is a story that I'm a part of. And we get excited. We get excited that these are the first words we hear from Jesus. But I think another really cool thing that we see from the scriptures is not only this account of what happened, the account of what reality is about God, but also what reality is for us and who we were made to be. And if you guys remember when we first started talking about this Luke series, we talked about how we're looking at Luke's account specifically to see what is the model that Jesus sets for his people. When I look at Jesus, how is he teaching me to be a child of God? Because what we see in Jesus is a man who was fully submitted to the Holy Spirit who is full of the Holy Spirit. And as we know, that opportunity is here for us. So we can actually look at Jesus as a model for what it means to be human. We can look at Jesus as a model for, oh, what can it look like for me to walk with heaven as it is on earth? Earth as it is in heaven, not heaven as an earth. We don't want it that way. I think that what is cool here too is that we get to see Jesus as child, as I mentioned. And I think what's really beautiful about this is that's something for this season in this church that we've actually been talking about, right? Is like what does childlike faith look like? That God's inviting us to be children, to learn more of what it looks like to throw off performance, to have fun with him, to enjoy him. And I look at Jesus, I'm like, oh, who better to learn more about childlikeness than from God himself? What did it look like for the son of God to live as a son? And as I read through the text tonight, there's something big that jumped out to me that I think is for us, is something Jesus shows us as a child is he shows us that the home that he was hungry for, the place he wanted to run to. His answer is that I must be in my father's house. For Jesus, God's presence was his home. In reading the story from Jesus's life, I'm reminded of children and their deep sense of home. I know that I don't have any kids yet, but when I was little, I remember going, I was 
probably like the kid nobody wanted because it's annoying when you go to a slumber party and you're like, I want to go home. But that was me every time. I get there a few hours later, I'm like, mom, dad, I need to come home. Please come get me. Because I was like, I want my bed, I want my parents, and I want my food. And I was like, this, I want like the smell of my house, all the things, just wanted to be home. And home is just like where I knew that I could be fully myself. I knew that I was protected and cared for. And I think that like kids do crave home and we as adults do too, right? You leave for a long time. You're like, oh, I can't wait to be home, be comfy. Like it was so fun to be out, but I can go home and I don't have to plan or I don't have to pay. I get to just be and I get to sleep in my own bed and I get to be familiar. Home is our place. And the best homes are not just shelter. They're the places we crave because of the environment, the people, the feeling that is there. And when Jesus asked the question, why are you searching for me? He's basically saying, hey, you shouldn't have been looking because I'm right where you should have expected me to be. And where's the first place that we would go to look for someone if they went missing? We would go to their home. We would go to the place where they live, where we expect them to be. And the temple, of course, wasn't where Jesus lived, but it was where he found rest. It was where he found inspiration, where he found contentment, friendship with God, because it's where his father was, where God's presence dwelled. Jesus shows us what it looks like to come and say, his presence is my home. So when we look tonight and we come, we say, okay, what does Jesus teach us as model? I think that here in this, in this account, Jesus is saying, hey, this is what it looks like to say my home is wherever God is. Where I am at home is where his presence is. And by definition, right, presence is, is to exist or to be present in a place. And God's presence is that. It's his existence in a place. He contains himself to place in order to be close with the ones he loves. We see this first in Genesis. Uh, God in the Garden of Eden walking with Adam and Eve. We see it in Israel. Like in the time that we see it here, God lives in the temple. That's where people went to know that they could be with him, to dwell with him. After the cross of Jesus, the veil of that temple was torn, Right? Jesus comes, the temple veil is torn, and God's presence where it dwells changed. He said, oh no, now I can dwell in you. That you, people of God, those who believe on Jesus, are new temples where his spirit dwells. 1 Corinthians six nineteen says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. And I think to talk about this is really important, especially in a church like ours, where we talk about the presence all the time, about how much we value it, about how much time we wanna spend in it. And I think it's important we have an understanding when we say the presence of God, we know what we're talking about. Sometimes there's terms that we can use that we become so familiar with and we don't really know why we're using them. We're like, yeah, the presence was like so good. And if someone was like, what do you mean? You'd be like, I don't know, it was just fun. But God's presence is way too important of a reality to do that with. So I wanna take a moment just to get on the same page, give us a little theological framework that we're gonna move forward with as we talk about the presence of God. From what we see in scripture, we can see three different categories to help us understand the mystery of God's presence. The first is omnipresence, and this is God in all places and at all times. The second is manifest presence. That's God displaying his glory in an obvious, notable, tangible way. The third is indwelling presence. It's God dwelling in believers. So omnipresence, let's talk about that. It's this reality of God. It's unique to him alone, that he can be all present. This is what the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 139 when he says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. What he's saying is God is everywhere at the same time. It's a beautiful reality of what it means for him to be God. 
God's manifest presence is slightly different. So manifest presence is gonna be God showing himself to people in typically very tangible ways. So many also, when you talk about this, you'll hear people maybe say the felt presence of God. We're talking about the same thing. Um, In a church like ours, you'll hear us say things like, God showed up so powerfully. The presence of God was heavy in the room. Or we see signs and wonders that point to his tangible presence. That's what we're talking about. It's God moving in our midst. And we don't, when we say this, when we use this kind of language, it's not saying that God was absent before that. It's not saying, oh, before, like, God showed up, he actually was gone. What we're saying when we use this language is that, oh, God is actually choosing to show up in a very special way, that he's choosing to show his glory in a special way. And when that happens, we do, we want to call to attention and honor God that he's showing up, that he's coming and saying, oh, no, I want to, like, display my glory in a tangible way. So when we sing songs like, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here, come flood this place and fill the atmosphere, We're not saying we believe that God's not here. We're saying that we're hungry for God to show up and manifest his presence, that we wanna see him move in those tangible ways, that we wanna see him increase our faith and bring glory to his name by moving in a way that like, oh, I can see it or I can feel it or I can hear it in these very tangible, tangible ways. God is no less with you before those things happen. He's no less with you when you're home getting ready to go or wherever you are but sometimes he will choose to show up in those special, tangible, manifest presence ways, and we so celebrate that. Because it's pointing to his glory, it points to what heaven is like, it points to that experience of what it looks like when, whoa, God is like in the room, when you notice it. The third presence that we're gonna look at is God's indwelling presence. And this is the reality that the Holy Spirit lives in us. The reality that believers have a union with Jesus, that his life is actually flowing in ours, it's renewing our inner nature, The union of God um, is actually compared to the union of a husband and wife to try to help us to get the mystery. It's profound and it's beautiful. He talks about it in Ephesians 5. Colossians 1 um, says this. It says, The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is God making us his new temple. This is him saying, oh, now I live in you. The reality as a believer is that God lives in you. And so tonight when we talk about this, um, God's presence as our home, all three of these are so important. But most of the time when I use it, what I'm talking about is that indwelling presence. What it looks like to come awake to that reality that, oh, God lives in me, with me, has chosen me as the place where he's gonna make home. And if God's chosen to make us home, I think it's a responsibility of the believer to ask the question, what does it look like for me to make him home? What does it look like for me to say, Jesus, your presence is home for me, where I long to be? And we're gonna answer that question tonight. But before we get there, I have one quick little side note because I don't wanna skip Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph, the account begins with them. Um, It's the last time that we see Joseph in any of the canonical gospels. He isn't mentioned again, but we see him the same way we met him. He's being faithful. Mary too. They're faithfully making that long journey to Jerusalem for Passover as they did every year. Uh, Faithful practice. And I know a lot of times we can come to the story and be like, oh, they weren't aware that Jesus was missing. And a lot of people, like in our day and age, if your kid's missing and you're like, I don't really know where they are, that's kind of a big deal. Like you need to know where your kids are. But for them, that wasn't weird. Whenever you would journey, you would travel with like a big family or you would travel with your village and children, especially ones the age of Jesus, around 12, would be with extended family or with your neighbors. You knew they were safe. That was super normal. What wasn't normal was for the child to stay behind by themselves. 
And I don't think that this account is included to say, um, oh, Mary and Joseph, we need to like question their parenting. Like, how could they be raising the Messiah? But I think it's so that we can see that by all of our metrics, their anxiety is well warranted. Their child is missing. They've been looking for him for days. They can't find him. Oh, and it's not just their child that they love, it's also the Messiah. So they have a big problem. We get this image of like a frantic scene going through cities, asking every single person, their crew, like, where is he? I hope he's okay. And then they find him. And Jesus is just sitting there calmly with teachers. He's not looking for his parents. He's on like the ground, seated at the feet of the teachers in the temple, asking questions. And so they have a question for Jesus in verse 48. Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And this is how any parent would probably feel, right? Again, I don't have experience in that area, but I know when my parents, I used to go missing at the mall a lot. I think I'd get distracted. I remember every time, my mom, don't you know how worried you made me? And I think for a kid, you're not thinking about how other people perceive your amazement. You're finding something that catches your eye or something that you wanna follow and you, you like get so consumed with it that you would leave and you get lost, not thinking about how your family will think of you for doing it. And I think this is the first hint that we see from Jesus in what it looks like when his presence is home, that he has so caught your attention, your affection is so placed on him, you're so consumed by him that what people think fades. When his presence is home, worry of what people think fades. This isn't the only time that we see this type of thing from Jesus. In Matthew, there's a story of Jesus' mother and brothers trying to get to him to speak to him. It's crowded. Um, and they're kind of like, family should take precedence. Tell them we're here. And Jesus' reply is this in Matthew. It says, he replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Okay, he's making us a little uncomfortable. And it gets a little more problematic later in Luke. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And stay tuned for that one later in the series because we are gonna unpack that verse. But those two references to say, Jesus doesn't change his mind from childhood on how committed a child of God is to be to the kingdom of God. What it looks like to have eyes locked on him. Even what family means changes the opinion you care most about changes when you're a part of the kingdom of God. And although it's not what this account is directly saying, I think it points to this for us, that us who hunger for his presence, who say, he's what I want, nothing less, my eyes are locked on him, I'm consumed with him, I live my life for him, there's going to be people in your life that say the same thing that Mary said, that look at you and say, why why are you treating us like this? How could you treat us like this? When you give your life to Jesus, and not just in word, but like I lay my whole life down, sacrifice to Jesus, there will be people that feel slighted by you. Because when living for yourself is transformed by the spirit of God to living for the kingdom of God, living as you were created, it won't make sense to people. Probably to a lot of people. And there will be people whose pursuit of happiness and self-fulfillment comes directly up against that way of Jesus. Comes directly up against what you've said, oh no, I give my whole life to this. And when you say Jesus is the way, they'll take it as an attack and they'll say, how could you treat us this way? So how do you answer that question when it happens? Well, Jesus shows us in that he doesn't beg for forgiveness. He actually doesn't even apologize. He says, well, there's nowhere else that I could be. When people feel that your walk with God is a personal affront, 
Don't apologize for loving him, for believing that what he says is the way of flourishing, but be able to answer with so much love, why? That now that you've seen him, there's no other life that you can imagine living, that his presence changes everything, that the kingdom of God is coming and that we can taste it now. Let him be your answer. Let him be your loving answer because at the end, his love is the only balm that can soothe the hurt of the human condition. His love is the only thing that can help people make sense of what the world is and his story is the reality. And so we have to live unapologetically. We have to, when we have those people in our lives who feel hurt by like our love for the Lord, our job is we pray for them, we prophesy over them, but we don't fear them more than we love him. Because what happens when we do that is they're gonna miss out on what it could mean to love him. May our love and our testimony win children of God back from the power of darkness, not make us just match them because we feel afraid. When his presence is home, worry of what people think fades. Now let's look at another question that Mary asked her follow-up. Um, we're gonna look at that. Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. That question was followed by um, Jesus' response, right, of why were you searching for me? Again, Jesus seems a little cold, even for a 12-year-old, but what I really think is happening is that Jesus' identity is so solidified. He so knows where he is supposed to be that he walks as a person of peace. When the presence is home, I am marked by his peace. I wanna again think of those two scenes and I wanna think of the juxtaposition. There's this like frantic chaos searching, and again, I do not blame Mary and Joseph for this, I probably would be the same. There's a missing Messiah, but they come upon him and he's sitting, he's asking questions, he's at ease. And so I think the parents come in, they say, okay, maybe he doesn't understand the anxiety that he's caused us. So they tell him, why have you treated us like this? And his response again is not to apologize. He actually doesn't recognize their anxiety. He says, we've been anxiously searching for you. He doesn't recognize it, but instead he questions their original thinking. Peace does not cater to anxiety and anxiety will fail in the face of truth. What had Mary and Joseph been promised, right? That they would bring the Messiah into the world, that they would name him Jesus, that he would be the fulfillment of their longing. And I think that Jesus' question was to say to them, hey, remember who I am. That they, had, they stopped and they, like if they would have stopped and turned from their fear and said, okay, wait, Mary, Joseph, remember, what did God say about him? What did God say that he would be? If they had turned back to the promise they received, what they knew to be true about Jesus, would their anxious, their anxious search instead have been a confident one? Would they have been confidently looking knowing that they would find him because of the promise they'd already received? We see Jesus later in life, he asks a very similar question. Um, Matthew 8, 23, a story that we're probably familiar with, but it's where Jesus is sleeping in the storm. And the verse says this, then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. In a scenario where fear again seemed a super adequate response, this was a vicious storm. Jesus asks, why are you so afraid? Almost as if he's again asking that same question of don't you know who I am? The kind of peace where you sleep in storms, where you don't warrant the anxiety for a child gone missing, when God's presence is home, there is a mark of a radical peace that doesn't make excuses for fear or anxiety that seems supernatural. 
We are instead invited to remember who it is that lives in us, who it is that we serve, the kingdom we are a part of. And I think that we live in such like an opportune time in history to be these people, to be people of a radical peace. Our world is hungry for that. I was reading, there was an article in the Washington Post that was um, released in April, and it was, the title was, The Pandemic Could Drive Another National Health Crisis, uh, GAO Warns and Its Anxiety. I have a few of the stats up on the screen too, but one of them is that more than four out of 10 adults, 43%, told the Census Bureau Pulse survey that they suffered from anxiety or depression. There's been a 29% increase in the last year of drug overdose deaths. There was a woman from the American Psychological Society named Lynn Bufka that said, there's a 50-50 chance that the person they are with might be feeling stressed, anxious, or depressed in response to the current situation. And I don't think that these statistics are all just like COVID or social unrest. It's a society that we've disconnected from each other. We've connected to like headlines that increase panic. We decided to take up political arms against each other. And it's a scenario, right, where anxiety seems a proper response. But I think Jesus asks us again, remember who I am. Don't you know who I am? Because if that statistic is true, and there's a 50-50% chance that when you're talking to someone, they might be stressed, anxious, depressed, what a difference it would make for them to engage with you if you're a person marked by peace. A person who remembers who Jesus is, who carries him with confidence. And I don't cite things from that article to be like, oh yeah, like our world's toast, let's go but it should spur us to be super hungry for the world to know the truth of the gospel. We should be able to see something like that and say, oh my gosh, 50% of the world doesn't know peace. Let me show you his name. Let me show you who he is because he has a name and his name is Jesus and he has authority on heaven and earth and he brings peace and joy to his people. It should make us that much more excited to be evangelists, that much more excited to be like, oh, when I go and I offer the gospel, I know that you're probably hungry for it. You probably want to hear it. And my prayer for each of us is that we wouldn't claim the norms of the world as our own. I know like in my life, I've wrestled with anxiety. I know a lot of my friends that do. There's people in like, I know in our church, this is not like a thing to be like, I'm shaming anxiety. I think that anxiety like hasn't won until you stop believing that Jesus can do something for you, until you stop bringing it to his feet. The devil doesn't win until we say like, oh, Jesus can't do anything for me. I understand that's complex, and I'm really thankful for tools that we have, for amazing counselors. Um, I even, like, I love researching. This week, I was like, huh, I, like, started researching the gut biome because that sounded fun, and that was, like, a thing. It's like, oh, your gut biome impacts your anxiety, and I was like, our bodies are crazy, and we're, we're stewards of our body, and God created people who are to live holistically, and we're full of emotion and deep feeling, all true things, but what is also true is your design was not to live in fear and anxiety. Jesus never ordained that for you. And I think we come to this place where with the world, we're like, yeah, it's just like a normal part of life. Like, oh yeah, I'm just, I'm a pretty anxious person. Jesus would not say that about you. He would never say that about you. He would never look at one of his children and say, oh yeah, they're just anxious. No, he says, I don't have that for you. Actually, I say like, don't be afraid that fear doesn't have a place in you because you're a child of God. He shows time and time again that the great defeater of fear and anxiety is to set our eyes on him. Fear and anxiety are products of sin in a fallen world, and we are not created to be their slaves. There are mysteries for why children of God still fight some of these things, but who God has said he is stands true for you, for me, that the storm bows to him, not the other way around. In his presence is peace and fullness of joy. 
When you've been with him, you're marked by peace. And if the stats in that article, like I said, reinforce anything, it's that people are hungry for that peace. It won't come in truth without being with him. We can't offer peace without offering him. So invite people to him. And I know that, like, again, this can be sensitive for many, but I think we have an opportunity as followers of Jesus to use the tools that we're given, all the good things like counseling, medicine, therapies, all good things, and we don't discount them. But I think we so easily swing to the other end of the spectrum where we discount him, where we say, oh, no, like, the to- you need- he's not enough. You need the tools. We can't swing that far the other way. We have to say that we see Jesus that when our brother or our sister comes to us and they're wrestling with fear or anxiety or depression, that we point to him. That we say like, oh, when you're feeling anxious, like get in his presence because fear's never shaken him before. That he says, oh, we can cast our cares upon him, that that's what's true. That we do point to Jesus as a solution, as the solve, and we ask that he would cause our hearts and minds to remember who he is. Don't you know who I am? His presence is the best place for any ailment. And I think the question is, do we really believe that? Do we really believe the way that Jesus shows that he did, the way that he invites us to? And I like, gotta be honest, I pick the lesser option often. It's a lot easier to say like, oh yeah, like Jesus, of course, because I'm a Christian, believe that, but like this, this, this. And I think that there's, this example might help. It's a a recent failure of mine that'll probably help to elucidate the point. There's a, there's a woman that I love a lot. She's been in my life my whole entire life. And that whole time that I've known her, she's had a really, um, really like deep struggle with alcohol. Alcoholic, been in rehab multiple times, lots of like lost relationships, lots of pain. Doctors being like, if you don't stop, you're going to die and can't let go of this thing. Can't let go of the grip that alcohol has on her. And last time I saw her, I asked her how she was doing. And she told me she'd been sober for a couple of months. And so I was like, that's awesome. That's really long for her to have that time span. And I was like, what are you doing differently? Like, what's the tip? What's the trick? And she very simply said to me, I realize that his presence is the best place to be. I wake up excited to be with him. I spend my day with him. I ask him what we're doing, where we should go. And I don't really think about wanting alcohol because it's so good to be with him. And Here's where my big failure comes in, so sorry to ruin the story a little bit. But my, an- my answer to her was, okay, cool. But then I recommended like this podcast that I heard on addiction that she really needed to listen to. And I was like, oh, and there's a supplement. And I learned that exercise like actually curbs alcohol cravings. You should do that. And all good things, but when I look back at when I said them, I was sinful in my timing. <laughs> I was sinful in getting to receive her story of breakthrough and saying like, yeah, but. I couldn't celebrate her breakthrough because my belief came through loud and clear that his presence actually wasn't enough for her addiction. My belief was like, okay, well, when like things get bad, that's not gonna cut it. Like when you're like hurting, eh, that's probably not gonna be enough. It wasn't a yes, you've remembered who he is and you've got eyes on him and there's breakthrough and I'm like so excited for you. Thank you, Jesus. It was, oh, it's probably not gonna last, so here's something else. And I've had to repent to her for that repented to the Lord for that, um, airing my dirty laundry for you guys a little bit. But I do not want to be the person who looks at the future without him like that, who looks at the future and thinks, well, uh, eventually that's not going to be enough. Because what I really believe, deeper than that belief that spewed itself out, is that he is enough. His presence really is that powerful 
We have no tool that matches his majesty. We have no person that can outgood the goodness of God. And we, can u- we use every tool at our disposal to fight things in our lives that don't align with his way, but we must go to him first. We must walk in confidence that he is our solution. He's not a last case scenario. He's not a maybe. He's not a like, oh, could be good enough. No, he is the best thing. And that's what a person of peace is able to do is look at the future with eyes set on Jesus. When his presence is home, I'm marked by his peace. In verse 49, Jesus asks another follow-up question. After he asked, why were you searching for me? He asked, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? He's basically again saying, don't you understand who I am? If you understood who I really am, you'd know this is where I needed to be. And like I mentioned before, it's probable that his parents actually didn't understand who he was, that they didn't yet know that like, oh, this like Messiah, God with us, is God himself. It says that Mary treasures it in her heart, she keeps it with her. She's figuring it out along the way who he is, the same as the disciples did. But who Jesus truly is necessitated that God's presence be his home. To be our true selves, who we really are, as we're created to be, we must be near who we were created for. When his presence is home, I am who I was made to be. We hear it said all the time, right? The the just be yourself. It's impossible to be yourself without him. You cannot know the real you without Jesus, without the one who crafted you in your mother's womb. His presence, being near to him, it reveals who you were made to be. Trusting him, it enables you to live into the story that you were created for, to live with kingdom authority you were made to live with. Our culture screams it, right? Like, I must find myself. But Jesus is saying, find me and I'll show you who you were meant to be. Find me and I'll show you who you are. I think another reason that we see anxiety, fear, and depression, like we see in that article, is that our Western, Western society is just champion to the individual. That we've said, oh, your most important quest is for self, self-actualization. Your most important quest is to figure out who you are. Set off, do what you think feels right, and you'll eventually come to that place where you understand yourself. But that will actually never lead to figuring out who you were. Because you were created for light. You were created for him. And we can get distracted or consumed with anything less, but it will never lead to answering those deepest questions. Of who, who am I? Why am I here? Only King Jesus can do that. Only King Jesus can tell you those answers. Only he can invite you into a story that's bigger than what you imagined, give you dreams that are too big for you to conquer on your own, and only with him will you see heaven come to earth, step into that reality you were made for of partnership with him, of seeing the impossible come to pass in the world. This is huge stuff that we're a part of. And I was thinking a lot about like these big stories this week, right, the ones we love to read. I was thinking of like Harry Potter that the world loves or like Lord of the Rings, these big grand stories or even like on Amazon, like the number one show is a fantasy, like fantasy show. And it's like, what is it about people that really draws them to these grand stories of like light versus dark, of the hero versus evil, that we're going against the impossible and there's self-sacrifice and love and loss. And I actually think we're created to crave those stories, that we're created to want that kind of story, but not so that we could watch it and disengage from the world, but so that we can not live in fantasy and actually realize, oh, that story is for me here and now. That actually, it's not in a book or in another world, but what Jesus has said is like, oh, I have the greatest story of all time for you to step into. That this is big stuff. 
The gospel inspires so many of those great stories that we read, but the gospel is the only one that's real. The gospel is the only one with a king so good that he would actually say like, oh no, you're in the story. I'm taking you from a kingdom of darkness, putting you in kingdom of light. Oh, and yeah, you're gonna rule and reign with me. That it's gonna be a story that big. We can't just tune out of that grand reality. We can't tune out of how big of a story that we're a part of. Because if we decide like, huh, like I'm just mediocre, maybe you'll feel humble, but you're not living as you should. You're not living as he's asking you to. You're not living into what you were created for. Because the enemy's gonna try to distract you with things like, that's too good to be true. Or like, okay, yeah, maybe like for, for those people, they'll have like that grand story, but not for you. That couldn't be your story. Or even if he can get us to immerse ourselves in a fantasy, to say like, oh, okay, well, I'm gonna instead, I see this happen all the time, of like, oh, my life has actually become, I'm committed to a fantasy because I can, I can taste the story even if I can't live it. But what Jesus says is like, you were made for this real call on your life. We can't live for those cheap counterfeits. We have to step in with him, get near to God, awake to his presence, and listen to what he speaks over our lives. Because he's giving us reality to partner in. He's gonna give us dreams for our lives. He's gonna give us vision for the world that his spirit in us whispers that nothing is impossible. When his presence is home, worry of what people think fades. When his presence is home, I am marked by his peace. When his presence is home, I am who I was made to be. So how do I make his presence my home? What's the how? We wake up to it. There are so many moments in my day that I have a choice. I get a choice to look at him, to talk to him, to ask him, or to just keep moving. Home is somewhere that's familiar, that's easy to find, and familiarity comes with consistency. It's time after time making that choice to be with him, to wake up to what he's doing around you. This last week, uh, I'd been sick, as a lot of other people probably were in the last little bit. And when I get sick, I'm such a huge bummer because I'm like, I can't do anything, can't think about anything, gonna go to sleep, hopefully wake up and feel better. And so I told Tyler, I was like, I feel just so bummed. Like, I haven't been hearing from the Lord. I like feel disconnected. I just hate being sick. Oh, and I miss the Lord. And Tyler, my husband, he's so good. He's like, let's go worship. And I wasn't like, yeah. I was like, uh, I'm actually tired. <laughs> and he was like, you're just saying like you want his rest, that you want to be with him. And I was like, I think I actually maybe just wanna like go take a bath. But in this scenario, guys, I made the right decision. I was like, okay, we're gonna worship. And the moment that I made that decision to step and be like, okay, God, I'm gonna look at your presence to be my rest, not like all the other ideas I had, I was met by him. He revives my soul, he wakes me up to him, he shows me how good that he is. But that's, it's that decision. Do I pick the distraction and miss out on the blessing or do I say like, oh no, I just wanna connect with my Jesus? It's always worth it for that connection. For you, maybe this looks like a discipline that he's inviting you to, a consistent way to connect with him in prayer, fasting, or a rhythm. It could be really simple as like, oh, I'm reading something on the news and it's striking that fear in me that you set it aside and you stop and you worship him. You say, okay, God, remind me who you are. Remind me who you are. Or maybe it's those really daily things, like the, the business of life that you're stopping with small decisions and you're saying like, okay, Jesus, I invite you to speak to this. What do you wanna say? Okay, uh, I got in the car and I wanna put on a podcast. What should I listen to? Should I listen to anything? Asking him those little questions about our lives, saying, I wanna connect with you every moment. And as you look at him and you wake up to what he's doing, you're gonna see the fruit of his spirit increase in your life. 
There's fruit that, we already, that we've already talked about that comes from his presence, right? But in verse 52, we get another glimpse at the type of, um, what this type of presence priority does and what it did in Jesus. It says in Luke 2:52, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. His presence grows all the right things. His presence is fully accessible. His presence is in us, with us. He is right here, right now, inviting us again to this life of presence focus, presence satisfaction, to realize like, oh, we're stewarding the most amazing gift. That God, you've made your home in me if I believe in Jesus. I wanna make my home in you. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you or if you wanna stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store or visit our website.